We'll hear argument this morning in case 16-111, Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission. I mean, I've been thinking about this case <laughs> so much for so many months, I, I, I could obviously talk about it for hours. This is Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. For today's episode, we interviewed Colorado Solicitor General Fred Yarger. The first part of the interview focuses on Mr. Yarger's work representing Colorado in the case Masterpiece Cake Shop v. Colorado Civil Rights Commission, which is currently before the Supreme Court. The second part of the interview focuses on Mr. Yarger's life in the Solicitor General's office. Before getting to the first part of the interview, let's start with some background on Masterpiece Cake Shop, one of the most contentious cases this year. In 2012, a gay couple asked a Colorado baker named Jack Phillips to make them a customized wedding cake. Phillips refused on the grounds that baking the cake would violate his religious objections to gay marriage, and the couple filed a complaint with the Colorado Civil Rights Commission. The commission determined that Phillips had violated a provision of the Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act, which prohibits places of public accommodation from discriminating on the basis of sexual orientation. Oral arguments were held before the Supreme Court on December 5th, and court observers expect a decision in June. The main question presented in Masterpiece Cake Shop is whether compelling Phillips to bake a cake under Colorado's Anti-Discrimination Act violates the free speech or free exercise clauses of the First Amendment. The case has attracted a lot of controversy and national media attention, and over 90 amicus briefs were filed at the Supreme Court. Mr. Yarger participated in oral argument while representing the Colorado Civil Rights Commission in the case, and we were able to speak to him about some of the central issues. So diving into the substance of Masterpiece Cake Shop, one of the important questions in the case is how to draw a line between speech and non-speech, especially with regard to service providers like bakers and makeup artists. The U.S. government suggested that one way to draw that line would be to ask whether the product is predominantly expressive or predominantly utilitarian. Do you agree that that's a good way to draw the distinction, or has Colorado proposed a different test? I think we really focused on, uh, in our briefing and in our argument, sort of the entity that was at issue here, uh, maybe more so than the product that was being sold. Um, And we think that's consistent with the way that these issues have been looked at in past cases. Um, You know, the entity here um, in a lot of ways, I think, is sort of the type of entity you'd expect to be subject to uh, public accommodations rule. It's a a store that sells something and um, any member of the public can walk in off the street and buy something typically and the store will sell it. Um, We're obviously very concerned about the line drawing question, I think both as a jurisprudential matter, but also sort of as in a narrower sense, you know, how do our clients really wrestle with that? Um, How do we, in a real world case, decide that this particular business uh, has a product that deserves speech protection, but this business doesn't? Um, And how can we do so in sort of a fair and principled way? And I think, you know, broadening a little bit, our our legislature, just hasn't drawn those lines. I think it said, look, retail businesses are within the scope of these laws and it hasn't. um, And I don't think many states have, if any, really delved into here are the products and services that we think should be subject to a public accommodations requirement and anti-discrimination requirement. And here are the um, businesses that shouldn't be, or here are the products that shouldn't be. So I'd say we, we 
thought about the case a little bit differently and we didn't draw that line. Um, uh, and, and that was just sort of our perspective from a, a practical standpoint and uh, a standpoint of the, the history of Colorado's laws in particular. So I guess a related issue um, is you you mentioned that retail stores are within the scope of the of the anti-discrimination law. But um, something that's come up is that as a question of whether nonprofits would also be within the scope that provide you know, low cost or no cost services. So is that something that Colorado has taken a position on? Yeah. And that's I mean, that's obviously an echo of the chief justice's questions um, for my argument. And I think what what we've seen in the case law from the Supreme Court is I don't necessarily think it falls on a distinction between profit and nonprofit, but I think it maybe falls on a distinction about what that entity is organized and is intending to do. And what we saw in Dale was an entity, um, the Supreme Court said, look, it's it's sort of organized around a message and the particular way the uh, public accommodations law was, was being applied, um, you, you know, affects the way that that message is carried out by that business. I think or excuse me, that that entity, which happened to be sort of a nonprofit um, community service and advocacy entity. Yarger is talking about Boy Scouts of America v. Dale, in which the Supreme Court held that the Boy Scouts' decision to revoke the adult membership of a gay assistant scoutmaster was protected by the First Amendment. Previously, the Supreme Court of New Jersey determined that the Boy Scouts violated New Jersey's public accommodations law by discriminating on the basis of sexual orientation in a place of public accommodation. The U.S. Supreme Court reversed, holding that the Boy Scouts' decision was a constitutionally protected exercise of their right of expressive association. I I think it's the court has been very shy in past cases um, to say that sort of an, an arm's length commercial transaction. Uh, and maybe um, my opponents on the other side would, would sort of say this really is an arm's length um, and they, they'd have other arguments there, but an arm's length commercial transaction, you know, by a retail entity, um, those are really the kinds of transactions and entities and, and commerce that the court's been fairly comfortable saying should be subject to anti-discrimination laws. So I think there's certainly a distinction to be made among entities. I don't necessarily think it falls along the profit nonprofit. I think it depends on what is sort of what is the reason for this entity and how has it comported itself? How has it chosen um, with whom and with whom not to associate? Those are the kinds of questions that I think we saw in the case law that sort of made sense and put guardrails on these kinds of laws uh, rather than focusing on profit status or you know, differences between particular products or lines of services. So then if you were to consider an example of like a Catholic legal clinic that chooses to only provide services to Catholics or heterosexual couples, I mean, based on what you said, would that be um, an, an example of, some, of an entity that's distinguishable from the baker or would its services also possibly violate Colorado's Anti-Discrimination Act? Well, I, th- I think what was interesting about this case is you had two legal entities you know, before the court, um, that I think everybody would agree have certain uh, free speech rights that might not extend uh, to other types of entities. You had the American Civil Liberties uh, Union, and you had um, the Alliance Defending Freedom. And again, I think I, I don't. You know, I think it depends on how those entities organize themselves and choose which cases to take on. And as I said to the Chief Justice, if um, you know, if, if the entity really is uh, operating in, in the sense of, you know, we, we have a location, you come in, here are the services we provide, and we've provided them to all comers, and that's been our history. 
I think there's a there's a fairly strong body of law that says that those types of entities can be subject to anti-discrimination rules. I think if you're really an advocacy organization, you take on particular causes. I think that changes the analysis and you're, you're more in the world of Dale, uh, Boy Scouts versus Dale. Um, so it's, you know, it, it's, it's maybe nuanced. I think though that, um, it's a distinction that's worked pretty well for a long time and my clients and, and, you know, our side of the case, we're just concerned about throwing a wrinkle into a body of law that for a pretty long time has said retail entities in the very least we're fairly sure um, can be subject to these kinds of rules. And uh, turning to a different issue, we were also wondering what you think about the importance of the strength of the link between the product or service in question and uh, religion. So, I mean, is that does the close link between marriage and religion in this case amplify the religious liberty concerns? I mean, do you think that the same concerns on maybe the opposing side would exist in a case about a birthday cake rather than a cake for a marriage? I think we're concerned about sort of the, the maybe the inverse of that question or the flip side of it, which is, um, you know, if you start going down that road, how do you decide what really is central or not um, to a particular person's faith? Because a lot of people, rightly so, you know, they go to work every day no matter what they do. And they um, – and they seek to, to uh, you know, engage in their profession consistent with their, their faith. Um, and, and so I, one of the things we're concerned about is sort of saying that a particular class of products or services, um, you know, gives you more, um, you know, license to have exceptions from these kinds of laws than others. And, and how do you administer that? And how do you um, really distinguish between those who, you know, feel that, um, you know, hypotheticals were thrown out the case. Architecture is an example, or uh, I think Justice Kagan said makeup artistry or catering, you know, designing an event space, renting out an event space. I think there are a lot of people that, that, um, you know, run those types of businesses with religious beliefs. I think those beliefs ought to be respected, but we also ha- ought to have a rule that, you know, I- is fair and uniform and makes sense. And, and I think um, for a long time, the distinction's been, well, look, if you sort of open yourself up as a retail entity open to the public, that typically comes with some um, requirements and, and obligations, and those include uh, anti-discrimination rules. And what about the availability of substitute goods and services? The U.S. government suggested that concerns about discrimination are alleviated uh, in this case because similar cakes are widely available from other sources. Should that matter in the court's analysis? Well, we we certainly don't think it does. And we had, you know, briefing on this. And the way we conceived of it is that if you look back through the the court's civil rights cases uh, and its public accommodations cases, you know, since the 60s, that really hasn't been part of the question. Um, And even Congress said in enacting the Civil Rights Act of 1964, you know, certainly we're concerned about economic access. But what we're really concerned about above that. you know, are social norms that encourage everyone to be able to participate fully in economic and social life. Um, and so, you know, for example, you don't say, well, we've got a really good labor market here uh, and it's and it's functioning well. There are a lot of options. So therefore, you know, allowing a particular employer to have discriminatory hiring practices won't affect job opportunities. So therefore, we're not going to enforce, um, you know, any discrimination provisions against this particular entity or type of entity. So you just haven't seen that sort of concern 
uh, animate any of the decisions of the legislations in this in this area. And we would be very um, concerned about that that type of analysis creeping in. Um, you know, perhaps there are a lot of options in in the front range in Colorado, perhaps less so in rural areas of our state, um, perhaps less so in other areas of the country. And so, you know, if you're you're looking for a uniform rule, it's it's hard to, in a case by case manner, say, well, there's an availability problem and an access problem in this part of the state, but not this one, in in this industry, but not this one. And so, we just haven't seen that type of analysis creep into these kinds of cases, and we were concerned about those types of arguments. Uh, so the case was filed in 2012, which is when Colorado did not recognize same-sex marriage. And it has been argued that this fact would complicate Colorado's position, given that Colorado was imposing restrictions on private citizens in 2012, that it was not bound by itself. Uh, so how do you think that point affects the case? I think, um, and, and obviously some of the justices were concerned about that too. And it's pretty fascinating. It's amazing how um, this this sort of set of issues uh, about LGBT rights have evolved um, fairly recently. But I think it also, um, you have to keep in mind that that in, in Colorado, at least, we've had decades of experience with these types of issues and sort of extending the same protections to the LGBT community that exists for other um, protected classifications and protected characteristics. So in our mind, no, it didn't matter. I think um, the question was, you know, what, what was, um, how did this this case look in comparison to a case that uh, if this person happened to be of a different faith or a different uh, race, would, would we clearly see a violation of our anti-discrimination laws? And I think the answer is pretty clearly yes. I think a lot of the justices saw that at argument. Um, so I don't think sort of the status of civil unions or, um, you know, uh, marriage for same-sex couples should really play in here. And I think it's significant that, that Colorado was steadily expanding protections for the LGBT community, you know, before it, it, it changed its civil union laws, before the litigation got going on um, marriage for same-sex couples. Um, so we, we didn't, we certainly didn't see it that way. Um, um, but we at least understand that this has been a, you know, evolving area for, you know, politics and law, um, and it's it's sort of interesting the way that this case arose and the timing in which it arose uh, and, and how changes came after the filing of, of the, the complaint in this case. Taking a, a step back, uh, what are the implications for Colorado if the Supreme Court reverses? Well, I think that uh, we've been talking about that throughout this discussion, uh, you know, I think the implications are really going to depend on what the court says. Um, my client and, 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 you know, legislatures in my, the legislature in my state, I think would be concerned about, okay, how do we take this guidance from the Supreme court, uh, and then, um, make it workable? How do we give fair notice both to the public and regulated businesses about whether or not they fall within that rule? Um, so those are the kinds of practical implications we would look at um, and be concerned about, I think. Um, and it's re it's really hard to predict. I think you saw the justices on all sides wrestling with these issues. Uh, I think there's a lot of stability in the law now because, you know, interestingly enough, at least from our perspective, there really wasn't a split in authority across this, the country. It's been pretty uniform that states have been upholding applications of anti-discrimination laws in cases like these. Um 
So I think there, if, if the court rules against us, I think there are going to be significant questions about how this plays out and what state regulators and state legislatures have to do to respond, to respect, you know, the court's application of the First Amendment uh, in this case, you know, but at the same time pursue what they view their missions are, which is, you know, make sure that the same protections available to other protected categories apply to the LGBT community. That's great. Thank you. So um, wondering if you have any other thoughts on on the case or uh, whether there are any questions that we didn't ask that maybe we should have. Oh, um, that's, I, I mean, I've been thinking about this case so much for so many months. I, I, I could obviously talk about it for hours. Um, you know, it's just, it, it's an interesting case. I think um, there's, there's so much focus on the, so maybe the ideological aspects of it that you forget there are some really sort of important basic legal questions about how does this work and, you know, are we going to depart from, uh, you know, maybe what we perceive are settled understandings and how is that going to play out in the future? It's certainly fascinating. Um, and we hope we made our best arguments to the court and we, you know, very much look forward to a ruling and seeing where this goes. It is unclear which way the Supreme Court will rule, and many are keenly awaiting the decision. The Supreme Court is expected to decide Masterpiece Cake Shop by late June. Mr. Yarger also talked to us about his work at the Solicitor General's office in Colorado. We asked him about his general work experience, about how law school has shaped his practice, about how the Solicitor General's office in Colorado is related to the Colorado Supreme Court and the federal courts, and about how he prepares for oral arguments. So to begin with, we'd be interested in learning more about your practice as Colorado Solicitor General. Um, so I guess first, to start off, uh, how does the role of representing a state like Colorado differ from your past work in private practice? I think maybe one of the biggest differences is the breadth of issues that come up in a state attorney's general office, uh, particularly in a case or a state like mine where um, we're really a centralized uh, counsel for all of the state level agencies. Uh, in fact, we even represent the judicial branch, which is sort of interesting <laughs> given that we litigate in front of those judges. Um, so I think it's the breadth. Uh, you know, I'm dealing one day with a criminal case, the next day with a natural resources issue, uh, the next day with a regulatory question involving our state school board. Uh, and it's really, um, it's fun in that sense. And, you know, in private practice, you tend to be focusing on a, both a smaller universe of cases and um, cases that are typically um, involve sort of maybe one or two areas of expertise. Um, it's not always true for all lawyers, but that's probably more true um, uh, than sort of the practice that I've been doing here at the state. So as I'm sure you can imagine, many of our listeners are students. So I'm curious, was there anything from your time here at the law school that you found particularly helpful in your current practice? I think, uh, I don't know. I, I loved you Chicago. I thought the school is fantastic. I think the professors are fantastic. I think, and you know, maybe I'm biased and I'm sure other schools do this, this very well, but, um, there's a, there's amount of high level thinking that you have to do when you're dealing with that breadth of, um, subject matter areas you're sort of looking for common threads. You're looking for ways to understand it without necessarily knowing every jot and tittle of every single 
regulation that every client might issue or every piece of case law that goes back in a line of cases, maybe 30 years, because I just don't have the luxury of time to know each area of law with that level of specificity. And, and I think a lot of what, um, the professors teach at university of Chicago is finding ways to understand areas of law and the sort of major principles that tie it all together. And if you can do that, I think strangely enough, sometimes you have some advantages over people that are so far in the weeds that, um, there may be missing the obvious bigger picture issues that you're, audience, which is the judges are, are looking for and hungry for. Um, so I, I, I guess that's what I would say um, about Chicago and, and how it prepared me for this job. Great. Uh, switching gears a little bit, I'm curious about the relationship between federal and state governments and the branches of governments. So the solicitor generals of the United States are often called the 10th justice. What's the relationship between the Colorado Solicitor General's office and the Colorado Supreme Court? I think um, I, I don't think it's quite the same relationship. I think the United States Solicitor's office is called the Tenth Justice um, because they're there so often, and it's the same people there um, arguing to the court and weighing in on all these cases, and it's sort of a nationwide filtering in that office of all of these issues. I'd say the similarity for the state um, practice is that we've got some phenomenal attorneys that appear so frequently in front of the Colorado Supreme Court and the Colorado Court of Appeals. I think, well, I hope at least they listen carefully to our arguments uh, and they know that we're coming from sort of a, a, a long experience and we're also coming from an institutional perspective that maybe some of the litigants don't have. So that's a similarity. Um, I don't know the SG's office is, is, is the 10th justice. Maybe I can be sort of extend that and say maybe the AG's office could be considered a little more in that role. Um, you know, because we've got criminal appeals attorneys who've argued uncountable cases in front of our Colorado Supreme court and have been there through the evolution of 30 years of case law, you know, particular issues with our capital punishment scheme or, you know, our marijuana issues now that intersect with the Fourth Amendment and all these other um, areas of law. So I, I don't I can't claim that I'm sort of involved in each and every one of those issues, but someone in our office is. And I think um, from that perspective, our courts find uh, the briefs that we file and the arguments that we make to be particularly helpful, or at least, at least I hope that's the case. <laughs> and what about the relationship with the federal courts sitting in Colorado? Can you speak to that relationship? I think I think that uh, it's it's maybe similar, but maybe a little more diffuse. We we're in federal court a lot, but probably not quite as much as we are in our state courts. I think um, the federal courts again are looking to us to be representing institutional concerns that maybe other litigants don't, and so they. I, I hope that gives them a little bit more incentive to to maybe listen to us and, and not look at us with quite so much of a gimlet eye when we're making certain arguments. Uh, at the same time, I think they're obviously aware of the realities that we have clients too, and we have interests too, that the court's supposed to, um, understand or not always it, um, uh, come with perfect information or, or maybe aren't, aren't, uh, seeing things the way that the judge needs to see them. So I think, I think maybe there's a little bit of understanding of where we come from and what interests we represent. Um, I don't think we practice in front of them quite as much as we do other 
other courts in the state, but I, I, I think we've got a pretty good rep- reputation and relationship with the judges here. And, and we'd also be interested in learning more about how you prepare for oral arguments, um, particularly with cases as high profile as a case like Masterpiece. Is there a kind of a regular um, way of preparing that you, you, you have? Yeah, I think um, it changes a, a little bit depending on the case, but um, there's a great book I think by David Frederick, it's about Supreme Court and appellate advocacy. That's a good place to start if you can find it. Um, um, but it, you know, it, it's pretty basic advice, honestly. Uh, it's it's a little bit of what you do in law school. You you have to be familiar with every single scrap of paper filed in a case. Um, so the first thing I do, if I hadn't done so already, is make sure my team and my support staff assemble, you know, every piece of material I need, and I think it helps. Um, to sort of do that up front very early so you're not scrambling later on um, and you can really start to winnow down all the key materials. So it starts there, starts with, you know, rereading the briefs and every single, um, you know, relevant portion of the record and really being familiar with all of it and then every legal authority that's cited anywhere. Um, I think the difference with a case like Masterpiece is we had upwards of 90 amicus briefs filed in the case that's just a huge amount of the material. I think a lot of it, um, thankfully, is, I wouldn't say duplicative, but cites a lot of the same material. So you're not reinventing the reel every, every time you open a Mikas brief. But that just increases the amount of time you have to um, leave open before argument to make sure you haven't missed anything. Because in the Supreme Court, you know, they're, they're going to care about this case and all the information that goes into it. But they're also just going to be cu- maybe curious or they want to know questions that slightly go beyond the case. I think in certain litigation in state courts or in, in federal courts in, in your run-of-the-mill case, it's it's a little bit more acceptable to say, well, I haven't thought about that or that's not really in the record here. I think it, you really try your best to think like a justice and, and question all of the little issues that might come up that they might be curious about and, and be ready for those in addition to all the really big questions um, that are at the heart of cases like Masterpiece. I think Justice Roberts once, you know, said that um, somebody asked him if his clients pay for all of the careful time he spent studying the record and being prepared for every single question. I think his response was something like, you know, my, my view is if I go to the Supreme Court and I, I don't have an answer to the question, uh, I'd rather have not billed the time uh, and had the answer to the question than, than worry about billing. Um, and thankfully, in a state office, I think you've got a little bit more flexibility to move your work around so that you can really focus on those cases uh, and be prepared for all the questions the justices give. And when a case attracts a lot of attention from the public and the media, does that also affect how you prepare in any way? I, I don't think it does. Um, I think it, it it affects how you communicate with clients and with uh, communications officials in the state government to make sure the right information is getting out there. I think it's actually important to approach the case uh, trying very hard to ignore all the noise, Um, you know, because especially in a case like Masterpiece, there's so many strong opinions held by so many people, um, but not all of them are terribly familiar with the specific facts or the case law or the precedent and the ways in which, you know, adopting a certain position might create challenges with other cases in the future. So, I think it's better to have a really good trusted team of folks that can help you think through issues and maybe be aware of the commentary out there, but try, try hard um, to really treat this as a case where you're representing a client and doing your very best and not, you know, not trying to 
get dragged into um, ideological or political debates and disagreements that that you should try hard to avoid. Um, so I think the short answer is no. I think, um, but obviously a case like this one, just there are more briefs. There's more arguments that are in play. Um, there are more people watching, and so maybe there's just a little bit of added pressure to make sure you leave no stone unturned. This episode of Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review, was produced by Catherine Running, Eric Petrie, Tom Malloy, and John Tinkin. Music from bensound.com. Thank you to Mr. Yarger for taking the time to speak to us about his work as a Solicitor General in Colorado. Special thanks to the entire online team, including Grace Bridwell, Tom Garvey, and Noelle Ottman, and our Editor-in-Chief Pat Ward and Executive Editor Kyle Jorstad. Thanks for listening.